Welcome to Newsworthy with Norisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. The show today on the podcast, we have Dr. A.J. Swoboda returning for the third time. And before you hear from, I think he's basically a friend of me at this point. He is uh, on the podcast for the third time. Anyway, we'll get to that in a second. But before I have, I've got a little rant, a little rant. A few hours before the podcast with A.J., I sat in my truck and penned a tweet about Beth Moore's recent statement that she has left the Southern Baptist Convention. I believe she says that she is still a Baptist, but she is no longer a Southern Baptist. And over the following few hours, I had a little bit of time to contemplate more about Beth Moore. And it struck me as something pertinent for everyone to listen to. That this is a story, that this is a situation that we all need to pay attention to. And what we see is what might be the most uh, you know, influential Southern Baptist, probably at this point in time, has made a decision that she no longer finds herself able uh, to stay a part of this tradition. And I think there's something very telling about the people and the things that we're willing to lose because they give us insight into what we hold most dear. And when the SBC is willing to let Beth Moore leave, it says a lot about what they're willing to hold on to. And a denomination which has the word Southern in the name, not because they're just located in the South, but because of a split involving a desire to hold on to slaves, hence the name Southern Baptist, you have a group that already has shown a propensity to hold on to that which they should have let go of. But I'm not like casting stones saying like, hey, where I'm from is perfect. And I'm not really trying to pile on the SBC because honestly, they're, they're not my people. Like that's not my tradition. Uh, I have spoken at a few Baptist denals back in my younger days. And that's basically the extent of my experience uh, with the Baptist church. What I think is most newsworthy about the story is not how bad the SBC is, but it's it's telling of all traditions where every one of us is far more content to maintain the status quo than to have hard conversations about things that need to change. And what we often prefer to do is hold on to those that we know and hold on to those that don't challenge us instead of listening to the critiques that those who are even a part of our groups and our communities give us. It's easier to hold on to people that don't bring up questions, that don't make a stink, than it is to listen to those voices that say, hey, this isn't, this isn't right. And obviously, I don't know the whole story about Beth Moore. I really, you know, I follow from a distance. Obviously, she spoke out against Trump, uh, sexual abuse. And as that's an issue that I believe Beth Moore has championed, Uh, From her own experience, uh, she's experienced the worst of sexual abuse, and it's no surprise that uh, she becomes a champion for helping us create a more just future in the church and in the world altogether. But she says stuff like that, and all of a sudden people think she's a a liberal? Um, You know, I, I think what we find is that we are far more content to play it safe and to keep things as they are and hold on to what we know instead of being willing to change. And I, I say this not, to, again, to cast aspersions at the SBC. I, uh, during this Lenten series, 
excuse me, during this Lenten season, the sermon series that I'm preaching is talking about villains. Uh, not that we can talk about like how bad these villains in the Bible are, people like Cain who killed his brother, or Haman who's the villain in the book of Esther, or Pharisees because, oh, these are terrible people, but because in some ways they cast a light, they, they open up a picture into who every one of us is. It's not like how bad those people are out there, but man, that's, that's a window into something that resides within me. And so this Beth Moore situation has made me pause and go, what, what am I willing to hold on to because I know it, it's easier than the change that I'm required to make or that I should be making. And so anyway, I, I, I don't think we should overlook the opportunity that we have in front of us to grow and to rethink and to reimagine who we are and what we're supposed to be and the way that we do church. Because if there's anything that's true about church is that it's easier to maintain what we are than to ask the hard questions about where we need to go. Uh, Not to mention situations like this bring to the surface the ways in which outside commitments have superseded our commitment to the church and to the kingdom, uh, specifically, obviously, political commitments that we've made. And I'm not trying to make any Republican become a Democrat or a Democrat be a Republican. What I hope is that we would become people who are committed to the kingdom of God, so that makes us better Republicans and better Democrats who are willing to speak truth to power and speak truth to ourselves, even when it's inconvenient. And stories like this remind us of just how easy it is just to keep things the way they are instead of change. One of my mentors said a long time ago, when I'm looking at uh, theological debates— one of the things I do is I ask myself, who's in each camp, who's on each team, and which team would I rather be on? Because there's something telling about the kind of people and the groups of people that get behind causes and that get behind issues. And it's telling. Like, wh- what team do you want to be on? And I think that's an important question for each and every one of us to ask going forward. So uh, anyway, that's just a little rant. I want to get out, uh, get out there. Um, I hope it's helpful. All right, um, now we get to... Dr. A.J. Swoboda. All right, friends, welcome back to the show. Today we have one of my absolute favorite people in the world, Dr. Anthony Joshua Swoboda. Welcome back to the show, A.J. Lucas P. Norworthy. There it is. Delightful to see you. It is good to see you. You're today in your office on the campus of, what's the name of your university? Hogwarts? Yeah, Hogwarts University, uh, uh, also known as Bushnell University in Eugene, Oregon. Bushnell in the in the heart of the Pacific Northwest. Bushnell, do they have a uh, a line of like hunting equipment? I feel like Bushnell yeah, is a terrific question. All my Bible courses are brought to you by binoculars. Um, Good, I like that. Uh, like Bushnell that. is a uh, is a long term uh, historic figure in our institution who. Um, actually, if you if you do own a pair of Bushnell binoculars, it's the same Bushnell family. Is it really? It is. Oh my it goodness, is. that was such a great question on my it part. Is. It is. That, that's this really good. theologian brought to you by binoculars. Really? What is, so he made his money, I guess, in the honey I world? I no more than, than I just told you. Nothing. That is else. awesome. Nothing. That was awesome. Well, that's pretty much as good as I can do for this podcast. That that was the best insight I've got. It was great to be with you, Lucas P. Norsworthy. It was. It was. Um, AJ, let me ask you a question. You are a doctor, and using your doctor education, can you explain what you do that pulls the sarcasm out of me to unparalleled heights? 
it is very difficult to have a conversation of substance with you. Um, <laughs> I, I have always struggled not only with you, but the way in which you cause me to laugh. I don't know where it comes from. I, I think historically we, we got off on the wrong foot. No, I thought uh, it was the right foot. Well, I just remember years ago when you entered me, interviewed me the first time. I believe it was for A Glorious Dark. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't actually think we got around to talking to the book. We just sort of made fun of each other for about 40 minutes. Why? Okay, so here's the question. Why do you think that, is, that has happened? We've, it, we've done this mostly, multiple times. Yeah, it's your face. I just, it's I my face? Your face beckons attack. Mm. Yeah. It's kind of like a uh, Kevin Hart and The Rock sort of thing. And so... These are you know, adjacent conversations, indeed. Yes, very similar. I, I hope people love it um, because I, I think part of it that you're not uh, sharing with people is that you have a blossoming relationship with Jonathan Stormont. It, uh, <laughs> I feel like the apex, the nadir of your connection happened in Abilene. You guys were together. I even uh, tried to find a way for you to come down to Austin so that maybe you and I could patch things together. Maybe you could talk about the Sabbath a little bit. Uh, I have people in my church who like your stuff about the Sabbath. So like wow. I'm, I'm sharing wow. the AJ love to my friends here in Austin. Well, and I receive we, it. Let's, let's, let's call this a new step in our relationship. Okay. Okay. I mean, I've, I've enjoyed the steps. I feel like this could be another step that I enjoy. I hope you enjoy it as much as I have. Yeah, let's talk about the book. <laughs> okay, uh, Dr. Swoboda, <laughs> you wrote a book about deconstructing faith. What have you deconstructed recently? Yeah. Well, uh, that's a good question, Luke. And you're, okay, you're do you want to start? You want to start with the. <laughs> I have one, like one substantial issue with the book. Let's just start with that. Everything I think goes uphill from here. You make a correlation between doubt and deconstruction, Mm. which I don't understand the correlation. Now, obviously I read what you wrote about it. First of all, tell me why you use those words. Is it fair to say you use those words synonymously throughout the book? Interchangeable. So at the very beginning of the book, so the the whole, the whole premise of this book is, um, doubt, um, is a legitimate place to meet God. That's the, mm-hmm. that's the big idea here. Mm-hmm. And a big portion of this book is about deconstruction. Yep. At the very beginning of the book, I note in the introduction, the interchanged use of doubt and deconstruction. No mm-hmm. question that these are not the same thing. But I do believe they are adjacent concepts. They are similar concepts. How so? I, I would differentiate the two by saying that doubt primarily is one's struggle to accept something they already hold. So doubt is, in essence, wrestling with something you believe or currently hold, whereas deconstruction tends to be the intentional dismantling of a Mm -hmm. set of beliefs or ideas. Yeah. Like, I like those definitions. Um, But deconstruction... For some, is like you have a phase of deconstruction and then you yeah. move to reconstruction or well, reorientation. I, just to be clear here, and I don't flesh this out in the book just for space, space of time, but I, I actually think a lot of the deconstruction that we're seeing now is the result of doubts that have not been paid attention to. So <laughs> we sweep stuff under the rug and we don't deal with it. We don't mm-hmm. talk about it. We don't think about it. And before we know it, uh, we're sort of undoing um, 
uh, aspects of our faith. So I, I do think that doubt and deconstruction go hand in hand. They are different experiences. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, just to say, I think, yeah. I think doubt when unattended to leads to um, when it ferments, as it were, can lead to uh, the deconstruction experience. So if deconstruction is the byproduct of uh, unresolved um, issues, questions, mm-hmm. in some ways it kind of frames deconstruction as a, as a negative thing. Is but that- it's not. Yeah, so th- I, I, I think that one of the things this book contributes, I hope, is that um, deconstruction can be a wildly good thing. We see, for example, Jesus deconstructed aspects of Judaic thought in his first century context. For example, when we see Matthew 5 through 7, when Jesus says, you know, you have heard it said, but I say to you, that is Jesus deconstructing certain interpretations of the Old Testament. Martin Luther, uh, who both you and I have accepted into our hearts um, as Protestants, um, both of us uh, are a part of a tradition that is a deconstructed form of, uh, of the Catholic tradition. Luther deconstructed elements of his moment in history and his tradition. And to be honest, there are times for all of us that we were handed aspects of faith that do not actually reflect Jesus or the Bible. Mm -hmm. And at those moments in time, for example, when I met Jesus, I was 16 years old and I went to a conservative evangelical church in my hometown. I'm so grateful for that church. They taught me how to love the Bible. They taught me how to follow Jesus. They taught me how to repent. They taught me about the Trinity but it wasn't until years later that I began to wake up to the fact that they had also handed me a very, very low view of women. And part of my deconstruction process was waking up to those aspects that I'd been handed that did not reflect Jesus mm-hmm. in Scripture. Yeah. One of our uh, mutual influences is a gentleman named Richard Rohr. Mm. And he makes the critique of those of us in the Protestant stream of Christianity. And, and he says that we did not reform enough that we started to reform, but there's more reforming that needed to take place with his, you know, quote-unquote, side of the tradition, uh, the Catholic, or you would say, like, the origin of our tradition. You can debate where that is and the semantics of it, but nevertheless, his point is that there's still reforming that needs to continue to go on, which I, I think his statement is, could be analogous to your statement, that there are things that needed to be continually deconstructed, even from your Protestant tradition. Your example was... Uh, the role of women and the way women are not, uh, you know, valued in the tradition you came up in. Which makes it, like, deconstruction seem to be like this ongoing thing that, um, I I don't see, like, the connection of, like, the women's role as, like, a doubt that was never questioned. Maybe you could connect the doubts on that more. If deconstruction is the result of doubts that are kind of kept under the surface, how, like, how does that present with, say, for example, the role of women in your tradition? Yeah. You know what? Can I actually, you, you just asked like 43 questions and they were all phenomenal. Can I go to the one that I, I felt like had the most zing to it? You, and you can go this, whichever you want. This comment uh, regarding Roars, uh, the, the church has not reformed uh, enough. Um, one of the things that I, I have struggled with uh, in my journey, particularly when I was a pastor, but now as a, as a theologian and as an academic, uh, is that often under the guise of reform, what we're really talking about is undoing apostolic historic Christianity. Now, I am all for reform. I'm, I'm a, a part of the Protestant tradition. I believe that the church can and should be um, constantly being reformed by the Holy Spirit. 
But the minute we begin reforming Christianity to the point that what we are holding is not a resemblance to the apostolic church, um, then we have reformed way too far. Yeah. Um, and so this is my way of saying, I'm all for reform, but the minute we start undoing things like resurrection, the centrality of scripture, Jesus is the way to God, these sorts of things that Christians have held for 2000 years, we are at that stage um, creating our own movement. I, I, re- I had this um, student of mine sitting in my, in my office uh, recently, we were talking about um, theology and sexuality. I'm, I'm, I'm fairly conservative when it comes to theology and sexuality. And she kind of comes from the more progressive side and we're having a terrific conversation. And I asked her uh, about kind of key biblical texts. And I said, what do you think God thinks about sexuality? And she said, you know, when you read the Bible, I know what the Bible says. She says, you know, I've, I've read these texts and she goes, but I think God uh, has evolved. And I said, what do you mean God's evolved? And she goes, well, I think maybe in the Old Testament, God thought one thing or New Testament, God thought one thing, but now he thinks something totally different. And I said out loud, and at the moment I said it, I didn't really think through what, what I was saying, but I said, I said, wait, are we, are we talking about God or are we talking about you? And what I think is going on a lot of the time is that we are actually changing and we're trying to get God to change with us. Mm-hmm. And if if that's what we're talking about when we're talking about reform, then I am not for that kind of reform. Mm-hmm. Um, we are called to follow Jesus. Jesus is not called to follow us. Yeah. You got a line in the book that says, this is a return to tradition, faithfully caring for the bones of the people who've gone before us. Yes. Uh, our friend Stormont likes to say, this is a, uh, in, uh, it is a received tradition. Like we don't create, it's not out of like ex nihilo, uh, but we receive what was given down to us. But in your tradition, when you're saying, hey, we're changing the understanding of women and their capacity to serve and lead in church— uh, some would say that you are discrediting, say, like Second Timothy or you know whatever Paul or, or is attributed to Paul um, as no longer being truthful. Uh, how would you respond to that? I'd say that's ridiculous, and I would say um, uh, thank you for the sweet question. And then I would say um, uh, that Luke, you and I share relationship with some pretty deep individuals like N.T. Wright, who would be very quick with a very brilliant brain to point out. Uh, that texts like Second Timothy don't always mean what they seem to mean on their first read. That yeah. context make a big difference in those texts, and that the overarching big story of Scripture, from Genesis one on, uh, is entirely affirming of women uh, in in the church and in ministry. So yeah. that at that point, I would just say I would disagree with one's reading of Second Timothy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, and that's what I would say as well. I, I think it's not that you're. You know, discrediting what what uh, was written about women, but dis- discrediting interpretations of that. And so, if you want to, just by the way, Luke, to say, um, as Christians who believe in 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 any concept of sola scriptura, that Scripture plays a role of shaping what is true and what is not for us as Christians, we need to distinguish that Scripture is inspired; our interpretations are not. And often our interpretations in Christian history have just been really off. Um, But the Bible is inspired, not our our interpretations of the Bible. 
Yeah, and, and so that's what makes it complex. Uh, there was a book by authors named uh, Webb, and the book was uh, William Webb: Slaves, Sexuals, and Homosexuality, and, and and or Slaves, Homosexuals, and Women. I believe is exactly. And so what he does is, uh, yes, there's a trajectory for change for women and slavery, but not uh, sexuality. And so his point is like we're having to negotiate and navigate between. Uh, what is an interpretation and what is the historical tradition that we have been handed down. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think if you went back to that uh, you know, person who commented about sexuality, if they, they said, you know, God changed, I, I, I tend to think that's uh, you know, maybe uh, a comment that I wouldn't want to get behind. But I think we're always in the process of trying to, to understand in a more clear and, and full understanding of what was handed down to us in this religion. And I, I think that always requires us to reread because... Yep, we don't get it right, and it's easy Absolutely. for us to superimpose our interpretations on what scripture yep. is. When I was in elementary school, you're, you're absolutely right. When I was in elementary school, I don't know if they do this anymore, but when they would give you your textbook um, in elementary school, they would have you cover the textbook with this brown paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then and then you would get to color on the on the textbook, but at the end of the semester, you'd hand you'd you'd rip it off and give the textbook back. Um, I think that we are called to to receive faith that way. The core teachings of the church, um, what you and I would call orthodoxy, have been written and we receive. But at our moment in history, we get to put a covering on it and and draw on it and make it our own for that semester, for this moment in time. That's called enculturating the gospel in a moment in history. to, To follow Jesus today is very different than following Jesus in Russia in the 10th century. It's a very different moment. And we're not following a different God, but the way that we follow Jesus today requires that we follow Jesus today. But if following Jesus today means we rip up the book that we've been handed for 2,000 years, that's a dangerous posture to have. I mean, we we actually have a word for that. It's called heresy. And the word heresy, which comes from the Greek word haraomai, literally just means to choose. It's to pick for ourselves what we want to be true and not true. Yeah. If I was uh, to be asked the erudite question that you were asked at the beginning of the interview, uh, what have you deconstructed? I would say some of the things that I've deconstructed and questioned are similar to the vax populi's response to that same question, which would be, you know, to understand what the church is, uh, understanding what the Bible is, you know, understanding of certain other facets. Uh, one of our friends, Pete Enns, recently tweeted something about deconstruction con- continues to happen until we... Uh, I forget the language he used, like release our grip upon, and this is the language he used, um, uh, bibliography, what did he say? Uh, Our understanding of the Bible as though we have it like fully figured out and superimposing interpretations on what the text is. And um, how do we differentiate those questions though? So we're trying to say, I I need to divorce my interpretations as though they are the book, my colorings on the book. How, How do we do that? Okay, so so we have to distinguish. We have to distinguish the difference between faith and beliefs. Mm-hmm. So, so we are saved by faith. I mean, this is the 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 classic, the the classic Paul Romans one. We are saved through faith. Ephesians one. We are saved through faith. One and two. We are saved by faith through grace. Um, we are not saved by right beliefs. And now, now what we mean by that is um, the man next to Jesus on the cross who pleads to be with Jesus in paradise, 
gets to go. At that moment in history, he had faith in Jesus and was encapsulated and welcomed into the kingdom in that very moment. There's nothing in the text that suggests he gets off his own cross, takes an alpha course, goes to seminary, and then gets back up on the cross and dies. His theology had not been ironed out, but he he had faith. We are saved through faith. And all of us have aspects of our belief structure that are off. All of us do. Mm-hmm. Everybody in the world who follows Jesus and has faith in Jesus has aspects of their theology that is off. By way of illustration, I love my wife with all of my heart. And we have been married now for 17 years. She has had 17 years to think about her decision to marry mm. me. And I've she had thinks about that one a lot. A lot. It's a, she's mulling that one over maybe as we speak. But I love my wife with all my heart. It has taken 17 years and really hard patches of counseling, errors, mistakes, of realizing that I don't really know much about my wife. Now, I love her with all my heart, but I, I don't, I am still learning about her mm-hmm. and I will learn about her until the day I die. I will never stop learning about my wife. Mm-hmm. But my See, we have a word for somebody who knows everything about somebody, but doesn't know that person. We call that a stalker. And a stalker is someone who has all the epistemic facts in place, mm-hmm. but no intimacy. Mm-hmm. Faith is the intimacy of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. Beliefs are the hard work of getting to know that person. And we need to not confuse the two. And somebody could go, well, then beliefs don't matter. And I would say hogwash. If I wrongly believed that my wife were having an affair, that would deeply impact my faith in her. If I thought she was cheating on me, or if I thought she didn't love me, or if I thought that her favorite pie was uh, apple pie, when in reality, she just loved cake, these wrong facts can actually impact my intimacy to my wife greatly. Hmm. So I think we see in scripture, we are called not only to faith in Jesus, but a pursuit of knowing about Jesus and both go hand in hand and are interrelated. Mm -hmm. It seems that tradition I grew up in had far more emphasis on knowing about the intimacy component. Absolutely. And I would say to people with all due respect to people like Richard Rohr, um, that there can easily swing to the other side, all about intimacy without the knowing part. So there needs to be a balance between intimacy of affection and faith and believing rightly. We're not called to one or the other. We're called to both at all moments. Hmm. I mean, there's, there's, I'm not, I'm not, again, I want to be cautious here, but there is a form, there there is a form of, of sort of mystical Christianity that actually are circles I swim in. I'm a Pentecostal where everything is about experiencing the presence of Jesus, but no thought is given to theological integrity. And Mm -hmm. that's a dangerous place to be because we all know that ideas really impact people. Yeah. And what can happen is we can uh, navigate ourselves or we can, you know, migrate into an experience with God that is uh, heavily dependent upon feelings, which maybe shouldn't always be dependent upon. Uh, you make the observation in your book that 
Deconstruction is not merely emotionalism, but emotions do play a role. When we don't attend to those deep emotions of anger or resentment, our actions become extensions of, the, of those dark emotions. The cycle can be vicious. And so you, you compare uh, this observation that C.S. Lewis has about the psalmist, uh, that he might be neurotic, but that doesn't mean they're irrelevant. Um, and then you go on to say that the problem occurs when we, equate, we equate who God is with our feelings about God. Yeah. How does that happen? How can we know that we have equated God with our feelings about God? Well, um, emotions play a really important role in the Christian life, and we are called to feel all these emotions. Uh, We serve an emotional God. We do not serve a God that doesn't have emotions. We serve a God who feels just like we do. The fact that Jesus wept, God gets angry in the Bible, wrath. I mean, the emotion, God is not capricious. He's not, um, he's not emotional, but he is a God of emotions. He's not controlled by Mm -hmm. emotion, but God feels, and we are made to be emotional Mm -hmm. beings. Just read the Psalms and you recognize the vast diversity of texts in the Psalms reflect the entirety of the human spectrum of emotions. The Mm -hmm. problem becomes when we start making theological decisions for emotional purposes. Uh, I I illustrate this um, with a story. There was a period of time when I was in seminary, coincided with my time in seminary, when I started getting really, really mad at Christians that believed in penal substitutionary atonement theories. And just virulently mad. I mean, I I mean, it was just just anger, anger. I I mean, I I can relate to that, like not as much anger as you have, but like I I, like I get that. Yeah, 100%. Let me ask you a question, though. Anger towards them? No, let me ask. I want my listeners to understand. Was the anger commiserate with anger you have towards me, or was it less or more? Like, just on the scale. It was less you. Less anger towards me, but not much. I'm mad at you now. Let me answer the question, because you're getting all snarky. If you could, by the way, Luke, he's laughing right now, and he's he's trying to be funny. Let me finish my story. No, I'm crying, because my feelings are hurt. (laughs) Okay, so you hate Calvinists. Go ahead. No, I was. I went through this season where I was really angry at penal substitutionary atonement. And I, I get mm-hmm. all the arguments for and against the penal substitutionary atonement theory. I get it. But it was not until, you know, work in a spiritual director's office that I began to realize I wasn't actually mad at penal substitutionary atonement. I was mad at the pastor down the street whose church was growing faster than mine who believed in penal substitutionary atonement. And what I was doing, again, we can have a long conversation about penal substitutionary atonement. Whatever your thoughts on the, th- the theory are, the blood of Jesus is absolutely necessary. Um, it's, it's central and core to what it means to believe in the atonement, what, regardless of the theory about it. There's, there's no question about that. But what I began to see was I was actually using a theological front to cover what was real jealousy. I was just really mad that the guy down the street had a bigger church than mine. And I know this sounds really silly, but I actually think we do that all the time. I think that we make theological fronts as a means to just really cover up the fact that we're really ticked at Christians. I mean, you know, when you read the parable of the prodigal son, um, the, the younger son runs away. He takes the inheritance. He goes off and parties. And, of course, there's the older son in that story who's kind of this rigid religious character who can't make space for the son when he comes back. When you read that parable, have you ever asked... Why did the younger son run away? There's nothing in the text that suggests why he did it. I think I know what it is. I mean, based on what I'm seeing in our world today, I think he ran away uh, because, because of the older brother. I think he was running away because he was sick of the older brother. And what I see happening now is a lot of people who are deconstructing 
Christianity, not because of Christ, but because of Christians. Mm -hmm. We see a church of injustice, a church that props up political visions that we see as abhorrent and wrong, uh, a church that's hypocritical and whatnot. And so we end up running away from the father because of the silliness of the older brother. That to me is using a, it, it, it makes complete sense why we do it. But why do we make theological decisions based on our emotions when emotions, frankly, in the words of Fenelon in the early church said, you know, when you base your theology on emotions, you're, you're, you're basing your theology on shifting sands. Our emotions come and go. We're all fickle. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's danger in making theological decisions for emotional purposes. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I think every one of us, whether it's in the religious community or not, have seen examples of us just uh, juxtaposing our feelings about something onto someone or some group that has nothing really to do with what's going on, and yeah. we're you know we're we're working our own stuff out on someone else, whether they know it or not. Emotional scapegoating. Yes, we are using. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I, that 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 hits the nail on the head. Yeah. And so we've got to be careful of feelings, but feelings also have a very important role in who we are. I mean, we're people that have thoughts and we have feelings. And I, I hear this as someone coming from a tradition that doesn't disrespect feelings. The Pentecostal tradition uh, doesn't have a problem with valuing feelings, whereas, you know, my tradition uh, has a great deal. And, and me personally, like I have a great problem with just ignoring feelings and kind of suppressing them. And that way, the Church of Christ is perfect for us Enneagram sevens. I know how much you love the Enneagram based on the book, so you'll appreciate that reference. But so when when I disrespect feelings, it's coming from a different place from you. I just want to acknowledge that. Um, so we can't be led by either one, whether our use of feelings or our abuse and disrespect of them uh, to lead us into deconstruction. Um, because it leads us into problem areas. And you make the point in the book about some of the worst forms of deconstruction. And it's interesting, you tell a story about an African Christian who gets trained and enlightened, quote-unquote, enlightened by Europeans, and he comes back and he's no longer able to do the miraculous things that he was doing before. And you say the worst forms of deconstruction are those that pass along a form of Christianity that fits our privilege, power, or current experience. Mm. first of all, I like that you gave your, mm, that was a good thought to your own line because it was good. I appreciate that. When we typically think of deconstruction, I think of it more as uh, people in a conservative church, they're deconstructing the conservative church they came from and they move to the left. I see more deconstruction right to left. Is that fair from your experience as well? Generally right now, that's what's happening. Yes. Yeah. At some point there's going to need to be a left to right sort of thing. Um, totally. At some point, but that's typically it. And so you have this sort of like uh, very enlightened group that, you know, they, they read the books, they understand the things. So this sort of primitive stuff is disrespected. And your story, I feel like it's been told over and over again. Um, how is it so destructive to have this for, uh, form of Christianity that fits our privileged power and current experience? Yeah. Well, I mean, the ultimate, and I tell the story in the book, the ultimate expression of this is what Thomas Jefferson did. Um, yeah. And, and what, what Thomas Jefferson did was Thomas Jefferson was a deist Christian who believed God created the world but was not involved with the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jefferson in the 1700s, um, you know, was steeped in Enlightenment, Western Enlightenment culture um, and couldn't believe in miracles. So when you look at his Bible, his Bible is actually on display at the Smithsonian Institute. Mm-hmm. He literally took his Bible and he cut out all the miracles. So it's, it's, it's the most depressing Bible in the world because it, it's the death of Jesus without the resurrection. And in fact, he cuts out the resurrection. And 
I don't think any of us, I mean, if I ever had a student come into my class with a pair of scissors and the Bible and say cutting out, I'd flunk them so fast they wouldn't even know what to do. I mean, it, it hit them so fast that they'd, they'd be out real, real yeah. quick. But we do that, you know, he did that. We do that all the time. Yeah. We, we come to the Bible and essentially say to the Bible what Thomas Jefferson did, which is we will believe in the parts of you that fit what we think is acceptable. Yeah. You know, another example of this is, is the slave owners in early kind of colonial uh, period up to the, the Civil War. Slave owners um, loved the Bible. They loved the Bible because they found that when the slaves read the Bible, they were encouraged. They found life. But they were in a, they were in a predicament. And that is that the Bible has a lot to say about God wanting to free slaves, namely an entire book called the book of Exodus. Yep. So the slave owners had a problem. How do we get the slaves to read the Bible and keep doing their hard work because they're encouraged, but we don't tell them that God wants them to go free. And so the slave owners uh, literally published their own Bible called the slave Bible, which was the Bible minus the book of Exodus and any reference to God wanting to free the slaves. And what you have here is you have people in privilege passing along a version of the Bible that makes sense to them in order to keep people enslaved. Mm -hmm. The truth is what we need is the whole Bible and not the parts that we like. Mm -hmm. And the, slavery did not end because people stopped reading the Bible. Slavery ended because people finally started reading the whole Bible because the whole Bible was not about just encouraging slaves. It was about encouraging slaves and getting them freed. Mm -hmm. The whole narrative of the scriptures is about a God who does not want people to be enslaved. He is about the freedom of the oppressed and the marginalized. Here's my point. We don't, we don't take scissors and cut parts of the Bible out, but we all on the right and the left do this to the Bible. The right will talk to no end about the importance of a personal relationship to Jesus and about piety and sanctification, going to church, repentance, the lives of unborn. But the minute we talk about refugees and immigration, the conversation ends. You talk to progressives who will care till the day they die for the children that are stuck at the border, for justice, Black Lives Matter, uh, for freedom, all this stuff. But anything in the Bible that has to do with sexual holiness is needs to be cut out. And the truth is, we are all passing along a version of Christianity that reflects what we are doing as a way, honestly, of protecting ourselves from having to repent. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's a fair read that uh, we're very prone to cut out the stuff that we don't like and we rationalize it. And, you know, we don't ever say that we're doing the, the Jefferson move of literally cutting it out, but we can dance around things that we don't like. Yeah, for sure. Um, once that, and, I, I, and, and to, to make a point, this is not about the point of this book. And the point of this work is not about to get progressives to become conservatives. And it is not about getting conservatives to become progressives. It is about conservatives and progressives, both learning to crucify their ideology and follow Jesus Christ. Yeah. No, that's good. Okay. Uh, a couple things I want to get to real fast. So, Quick answers on this. We are more likely to face a threat that impedes our spiritual progress and growth and faithfulness by not hedonism, but distraction. True or false? True. Because why? Oh, by, by, by I meant to say by distraction, not hedonism. Is that yeah, what you yeah, said? Yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm yeah. the Andrew Sullivan quote you have in the book. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. If if God if if God can get us to not pay attention, if if God if the, the devil, if the demonic powers of this world can get us to not pay attention to God, then He has won. Yeah, 
He has one. It's over. Uh, I think that's a fascinating statement, and I think it's very accurate. We're more likely to be uh, busy than bad. I think that's Lewis's line, yep. and spot on. If, if God, if 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 God, if the demons can't get us to You're be, you're struggling bad, on that one today. That's a, the a lot. They, then then if they can't get us to be bad, then they'll get us to be busy. That's a classic Lewis Lewis quote. Yeah, yeah, classic. Okay, uh, you make the observation, or you quote sociologist Peter Berger's. The homeless mind. The homeless mind. His observation that we are no longer an honor culture, but an achievement culture. Yes. Honor culture means we are less likely, not having an honor culture being who we are, means we're less likely to stick with the family and stick with the tradition, so we're more likely to deconstruct. Is that a, a fair read of that? Um, yeah, we would need to talk a long time about, about that. But, but the, the, the honor culture thing... In the time of Jesus, it was an honor culture, and an honor culture is a culture that preserves the past. Everything is about the preservation of the past. Yeah. So that's why Jesus says a prophet has no honor in their hometown. Well, we we have we have swapped everything now. We are now not an honor culture. We are a a culture that does away with the past, and everything now is about the future. So in the past, a prophet had no honor in their hometown, but now a prophet has no honor for their hometown. And that is that we see people who um, are fighting for justice and goodness, but man alive, they hate the places they grew up in and the, the environments that they were raised with. And so both sides are deeply dangerous. We are called to simultaneously honor and leave. We are called to honor where we came from, and we are called to leave and follow Jesus. I have some friends at our church who are from Iran, and I've heard harrowing stories of people who literally have been imprisoned because of their faith, and their conversion to Christianity forced them and caused them to be shunned from their home communities. Yes. And in a way that I couldn't imagine. But I think it demonstrates our comfortability with individuality in America and many other societies' uh, antithetical position towards that, where it costs them so much to leave. And uh, yeah, it means conversion is drastically different. Uh, let me ask another question. Transition here. Have you been staying up with the current debate in physical therapy communities of the changing role and the changing view on ICE and its, uh, and its helpfulness in recovery from inflammation and or injuries? You know, this is an area that I haven't explored theologically as much as I'd wish to, okay. uh, but Look, I do have very strong feelings uh, that, that the church needs to really, really get involved in this conversation. Good. Well, let me help you start the conversation. Now, typically, uh, the attitude that many have had in sports medicine communities has been, if there's an injury, you want to ice it, you want to compress and elevate. Now, the very uh, doctor who came up with that acronym has now come out and said, actually, ice is not that helpful. And so I'm listening to people who say ice isn't as helpful for muscle recovery, like injuries and recovery from like a muscle injury. I believe that. Like, I believe these people. I read their stuff. I trust them. They're more, uh, they're more educated on this than I ever will be. But you know what happens? Last week, tweaked my back. You know what I did? Got some ice out. Poured in my bathtub, hopped in like I used to do it like once a week because you know what? It, it felt good for that second to like freeze my back. Let me, yeah. let me tell you the point where I'm going with this. One, I feel like you need to get away from ice and I feel like you do it too much. Second, I think it is a metaphor for how we can deconstruct an idea, but in crisis, we revert back to what we mm. always held to. So as the old saying goes, there are no atheists in foxholes. 
crisis typically causes our, you know, subterranean beliefs to come to the surface, even if we think that they're not there anymore. Is that a fair statement? In crisis? Yes. I have never met somebody who converted to atheism on a deathbed. Tell me more. Death makes you wonder about God. It makes mm-hmm. you it makes you face reality. True. But also, like, when we are in crisis, some, some beliefs that we thought we deconstructed, they become front and center all over again. Because uh, in those moments, like, I really have to decide if I believe that or I don't, right? Like, yeah. if I really believe something about how I'm supposed to treat someone or a certain group of people, when I actually am faced with a crisis, that's when yeah. I finally realize if I, tr- if I truly believe that or not. That's brilliant. You should write a book on that. The Great Reversion. Uh, I thought it would be ice, ice for your baby. I don't know. Yeah. Something like that, maybe? I don't know. You're, you're on to something here. There's something Some- there. Okay. There's something here. AJ, I feel like we've done a lot uh, in terms of our relationship. Do you feel like we've advanced, progressed, or we've, we've conserved the best? Fronts. Yeah, we've advanced on, I feel like, our depth of intimacy. I feel like mm-hmm. we've taken uh, this to uh, what, they, what the youths would call second base. Uh, in terms of our friendship. I, um, I don't feel like that's what second base means. I feel like the youths are telling me something different. The youths of America. Uh, well, yeah. whatever it is, I feel like we've we've taken our friendship to another level. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like we've been able to have a good, substantive, um, somewhat sarcastic, free conversation about a topic that actually matters very much to a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, uh, I feel so. The uh, The book you have just released, is it out now? It it released last Tuesday. Oof. Yeah. Oof. The title is... I'm holding it right now. It's hot. After Doubt. How to question your faith without losing it. Let me ask you one question. You yeah. start off the book explaining how orthodox you are. <laughs> you do. Like you say, like, I believe all these things. Yes. True or false. That was to say, hey, it's safe you can listen to me because I believe all the things that mm. you're supposed to believe. Um, I don't know. I'd have to. I'd have to dig in with my spiritual director and counselor on that one. Uh, I think that was just my way of saying I really, really think that what the church has said for two thousand years really matters, and I believe it. Yeah. No. I, I, like I'm not saying that dismissively. I feel like if someone's going to tell you something, they should let you know where they're going to be. And yeah. I, I feel like being direct is helpful. Anyway, Doctor Swoboda, appreciate your time. It's good to see oh. you. Lucas P. Norsworthy. It's Mm -hmm. a delight to be with you. A lot of people like to give me that middle initial. I don't know why, but they do. What is your middle initial? It is not P. It is A. Austin for the city I live in. You know why? Because I'm committed to where I live. Lucas A. Norsworthy. Yeah, Luke Luke A. Luke Austin Norsworthy. Either way, nevertheless. AJ, I know you got to run. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.